Yes, everyone knows about poaching for their ivory, but what people don't realize is that even if we stopped all ivory poaching today, if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of all wildlife crime in relates, as it relates to ivory, elephants are still going to be endangered. Elephants are still under threat of extinction. And that's because there is no safe habitat that exists for elephants. There is no magic utopia where elephants or any wildlife can just live and be protected and live out some sort of Disney-esque fantasy for their future. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we talk about my favorite subject, animals. I have a guest on today. I've been trying to get on the podcast for quite a while, but she stays very busy. One of the reasons she's so busy is she works for the International Elephant Foundation and wears a lot of hats to ensure that we do everything we can to keep elephants in our lives. Sarah Conley is a conservation specialist with the International Elephant Foundation. But because it's so important to them to keep the bloat out, keep their layer of salaries lean, and more than 80, 85% of those monies donated go directly to the animals is what makes this such a great organization. Not to mention the experts they have. In prior podcasts, I've interviewed Dr. Dennis Schmidt, an expert in the perpetuation of highly endangered Asian elephants. He's a founding member of the International Elephant Foundation. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation all about elephants. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. I, uh, you're such a go-to for me. I, I'm bugging you all the time with questions and thoughts and all these ideas. And you're very patient. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, you're, you're patient, but you're also very knowledgeable. So I'm really excited to have you on. We've been trying to schedule this. So tell uh, the listeners what you do for the International Elephant Foundation. I am the conservation coordinator for IEF, or the International Elephant Foundation. And because we are a small but mighty uh, conservation organization, I wear many hats. I helped, I help choose and guide and oversee our conservation projects. Wow. So in, in 2023, we have 28 projects in 17 different countries. Um, that's up from last year in 2022 we had only 23 projects in 14 countries so we we are growing um i also run our social media i oh write boy. for our different public <laughs> yeah i write for our different publications i handle some of our government filings i represent us at CITES um and different conferences so we all wear many hats because there's really only three of us who are employees and right. that's, that's an intentional thing. We want to make sure that 85 to 95% of all donations go directly to what we call boots on the ground conservation. And that means that we're not going to have that bloated overhead that you see in a lot of other organizations. And the way we accomplish that is people like me who do many things. Yeah. Wow. You covered a lot there. That's great. I know I'm, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Dennis Schmidt, who I believe was one of the founding members of IEF. And we've talked about the fact that if you want to donate to an organization where the money is going to the animals, uh, IEF is a great one. And I appreciate that, that you guys keep it lean on your staff. And I feel really bad about all the times I bother you now because you're a really busy girl. <laughs> <laughs> you're oh, no, answering you all my questions bad. and like you're just sitting there with nothing to do, you know? Um, but well, I, I know you stay I, busy. Yeah. But I do this because I love elephants and I love animal people. And so it's, it's great to have conversations with people like you and yeah, Dr. Schmidt is, he's a vast source of knowledge and he's so important to us as an organization and how we, how we choose and analyze projects and just as a resource when we have questions. Um, I love Dennis. He's yeah. just 
he's done so much good for elephants around the world. And it's, uh, it's an honor that we get to have him. Well, now not as a board member, cause he's, he's retired. He and pretends he, he's do... pretending to retire, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but he's, I, we made sure to keep him on as an advisor. So yeah. we still, we still bug Dennis quite a bit. He's a, invaluable member of the team he was my second or third podcast when i started this and i i told him and i i still feel that way he was one of the reasons i wanted to do a podcast when i thought about how i wanted to tell stories and that this information need to get out there because there's so much misinformation and dr schmidt is just one of the people i was like we he we hear him at conferences and you go to the next level international conferences and such I wanted, I wanted the public, the lay people who are so passionate about elephants, but in some cases so misguided, to hear from those people and yourself as well, because we talk to our industry or to our, um, you know, the folks involved with it. My, the podcast goal is to reach listeners who are really care about animals, but lay people. They're not animal owners or animal trainers or, you know, have a job like yours where they, they, they deal with conservation of a highly endangered species. No pressure there. <laughs> exactly, right? So well, what, but, what does that and, mean for you? What do you, how do you go about a job like that? Give us an idea why the conservation, first of all, is so important. What kind of statistics or information about, uh, I think specifically the uh, African, uh, Asians, but you deal with both, both types, right? Yeah, so... International Elephant Foundation deals with uh, all elephants, so conservation of every species. Right now, there are three recognized species, the African savanna elephant, and there's about maybe 400,000 of them left. The uh, African forest elephant, which is the most newly recognized species, although researchers and conservationists have believed that they were a separate species for a long time. It's just now been officially recognized and using genetics and things like that to actually prove it. Uh, there's maybe 50,000 of them left in the world. Wow. And then Asian elephants, which have subspecies, but uh, primarily Asian elephants, there's 40 to 50,000 of them left in the whole world. So that means wow. on the continent of Africa, close to 500,000 elephants in all of Asia, maybe 50,000 so we have our work cut out for us, but every elephant, all elephants need our help conservation wise because they're all mm -hmm. losing habitat. They're all victims of poaching. Um, and that's why IEF exists. Yeah. Wow. It, it, the statistics are staggering the numbers. I mean, especially the Asians, I didn't, I mean, I knew it was, it was, uh, a plight, but I didn't, I didn't recognize that it was that, uh, significant. So, what are the what are the thoughts on how we go about trying to uh, conserve the species, try to perpetuate the species? What are the what type of work, what type of programs are out there that you know have some effect, hopefully positive effect? Sure. Well, so I think first we should talk about elephants in general and why. So. When you're talking about elephant conservation, we're talking about in situ conservation in their range countries and their home countries. Okay. So why are ele why are elephants being threatened in their home countries? Yes, everyone knows about poaching for their ivory, but what people don't realize is that even if we stopped all ivory poaching today, if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of all wildlife crime in relates as it relates to ivory, Elephants are still going to be endangered. Elephants are still under threat of extinction. And that's because there is no safe habitat that exists for elephants. There is no magic utopia where elephants or any wildlife can just live and be protected and live out some sort of Disney-esque fantasy for their future. Yeah. Which means that we have to find ways to peacefully coexist with elephants while protecting their habitat. So, of course, IEF, we have many projects to address um, security issues, stop poachers, stop wildlife crime. 
But we have a lot of projects that also focus on working with communities to safely co- coexist with elephants so that they don't worry about elephants coming into their crop fields, coming into their towns and destroying maybe a, a whole year's worth of harvest in one yeah. night. And situations like that create animosity toward elephants, which can then lead to retaliatory killing of elephants. And then that hurts the overall species survival. And you also have to teach communities not to go into the habitats that do remain and clear them, uh, do illegal logging, uh, set up illegal palm oil plantations, or uh, there's a lot of little patches of the habitat that are getting destroyed so that we can mine for rare earth minerals, right? Things that that you need for every piece of electronics that we buy, but that if you're buying that cell phone, maybe you're destroying elephant and orangutan habitat while you do it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, we have a lot of projects that focus on building a community consensus for conservation because the people who choose to live alongside elephants or who are born living alongside elephants they're the ones that are going to decide whether we have elephants in the next generation and generations after that. If we can't get them to live safely and peacefully with wildlife, there are no elephants in the future. Yeah, I, that's and that's not the narrative that you hear or what the, you know, Gosh, on Facebook, there's so many elephant groups, and uh, I love elephants, we love elephants, elephants are magnificent, whatever it is. And it, what it, the narrative on that is always, they need to go back to the wild, you know, the utopian <laughs> wild, please leave them alone. Is I mean, I don't believe there is a utopian wild. I've heard other experts say that every elephant on this planet is managed by humans and for their survival, that's the only possibility. And you're right. Uh, one of the interesting statistics that I like to point out with Asian elephants is if there are 40 to 50,000 Asian elephants left in the world, about one third of them live in some form of managed care right now, whether that's in a fenced off preserve, whether that's actually in one-on-one human elephant interaction contact if one third of an endangered species lives in managed care there is absolutely no way you're ever going to go back to all of them living in some magic wild away from all humans no human contact because there's not space for them there's not safe habitat for them and there's a huge amount of competition for that space right because you have the, the reality is most elephants live in what are developing countries, right? They're, they don't live in France, the United States, places that are industrialized. They live in countries that are growing, people who are trying to get better, improve their economies. And if they have to choose between feeding their family and building a business and protecting some animal that they've never met, they're going to choose to feed their family. Yeah, And so it, you cannot divorce the economic aspect of this and the human aspect of it. So you have to have a realistic idea of what is a feasible solution. And yeah, some form of managed care, whether it's um, big wildlife parks like they have in Africa or different situations all throughout Asia, as long as the elephants are living a great life as long as they can express natural behaviors and as long as they're breeding. It's so important that with these endangered species that those genetic lines keep progressing and keep getting passed on. So you can't have these magical places where they can just roam free and exist and not be under some sort of human pressure. Those don't, those don't exist, unfortunately. Right. And if you have 50,000 Asian elephants, you've obviously got a genetic, a gene pool challenge as well, right? I mean, I know the elephants in captivity, Dr. Schmidt and I have talked about that, that the the importance of some of the herds that circuses had, which were larger herds, 
were so important because of the, the diversity of the gene pool. And uh, when you have a zoo that has three elephants, another zoo that has three, you have a challenge there. So absolutely. with that in mind, we're talking about, ele- we're, you know, this conversation so far has been in situ, elephants in the range country. Now we, we come to developed countries, and let's take the United States. We've got the AZA. Boy, there seems to be a push from the, again, the, I just said this in a, a different episode. It's like ringling, like, well, we took the elephants out of the show because uh, that we were responding to the public. No, you're not. You're responding to a vocal minority, not the people who actually came to your show, because when the elephants were gone, less people came to your show. So a friend of mine, uh, my co-host on my dog podcast, went to the Dickerson Park Zoo, and he said he was so disappointed. It's a beautiful zoo, all of that. No shows, no interaction, no keeper talks, at least while he was there. And he said it was at somewhat such, it's some level of stagnant environment where um, he felt like kids just checked out. He was there with some uh, relatives, some young kids. And they just kind of like were very, very little interest because there were no shows and no interactions. Add to that, that zoos are being pressured to get rid of their elephants. We can't take proper care of them or they're told they can't take proper care of them. So they're sending them off and typically to sanctuaries, which by the way, don't breed elephants. So to me, I, I feel like it should be illegal to send a breeding age elephant to a sanctuary that's a black hole where they're not, they're taken completely out of the gene pool and completely out of the breeding program. But I don't know, you know, IEF, I know you guys are involved in various things, but I, I just am concerned that we're, we're removing out more elephants from the public and removing our shows and such where they actually see elephants move and, you know, to see these animals, I think is what's going to save them. I believe, you know, studies bear that out. And we believe that too. Seeing an elephant in person teaches you to care. Yeah. Most people don't remember what you saw on YouTube yesterday, let alone last week, right? That did not make an imprint to your core. Yeah. But the first, the first time you see an elephant, whether it's, if you're lucky enough to go on safari or whether it's going to a zoo and seeing them give themselves a bath or doing an educational or like we call it edutainment Edutainment. show, right? Because you can learn about something and also be delighted by it. Absolutely, Uh, There's no reason not to do that. So if you can inspire people to care by having elephants in human care, whether it's in a zoo at a private facility, whatever, you are making a difference because those people go home with a memorable personal experience that they will talk about for the rest of their lives. And that's what inspires them to donate to places like IEF to do things like stop buying palm oil, or if the, if they were an ivory buyer, they think twice about buying tchotchkes made out of ivory. It's, it is so important that people have that personal experience with wildlife. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, you do a podcast with dog about dogs. If so many people hadn't interacted with dogs, do you think that they would be as passionate about them and as passionate about taking care of them? No. So everyone that has a more personal experience with an elephant has something to draw back on. And that, you know, the whole elephant industry is full of people where if you ask them, how did you get started in elephants? They can almost always trace back to some experience as a kid, seeing an elephant somewhere or feeding them or riding them, doing all kinds of things. And it's, it's an impressive way to anecdotally track how much maybe one elephant made a difference for a global population. Well, I mean, it's evidenced by the fact that when they take these elephants, was it Knoxville Zoo was the most recent one to send their elephants off? And um, people were just heartbroken, you know, like, well, you know, the elephants are just the, the thing about the zoo we love, but if this is better for them, is it better for them? You know, I'm just so disappointed that we're, the shows are 
considered bad at this point, the edutainment aspect, because it's great. I know I grew up with elephants, I've been around elephants, and I know it's good for the elephants. I know the elephants enjoy it. I've seen elephants go do their thing when they weren't even asked to. Dr. Friend's study, the only stress they had was when they were held out of the performance, which is kind of funny. <laughs> also, another podcast I did with Dr. Ted Friend. Uh, but I, I'm just so disappointed in that. I, there's another association, the Zoological Association of America, that doesn't frown upon that. It is not discouraging their members from doing that. And it's funny because those are some of the smaller uh, facilities or private facilities. So they have a little bit more autonomy, but the narrative is, and uh, chat GPT is, is really a problem for this as well. I've been kind of going on it and seeing what it has to say about a lot of this, and it's following the really dangerous animal rights narrative, sadly. But these private zoos and, and these member zoos that do edutainment, do keeper talks, allow the animals to do shows, People are still loving it and enjoying it. They're seeing, you know, I hear people that like when it's time for the show, people are crowded around and ready for it. You hear the same thing at the aquariums. Oh, we don't do shows. There's no killer whale show. There's no a dolphin show. But when they actually feed the dolphins and they have them jump out and do a couple things, all of a sudden everybody's by the pool watching it, you know. So I, I really don't understand. I, I think it's misguided that they're not listening to their actual patrons or the people who go there. Um, I wonder- You're right. Uh, on that point, it's also, I think, important to realize that it's, it's a cultural difference. Because if you're talking about the United States, everything you just said is accurate. But if you're talking about, say, in Asia, they have a culture of interacting with yeah. their elephants. And for us to, to put our, you know, let's say our collective cultural ideas on them is being almost a little culturally imperialistic, disrespectful, because they have, you know, 5,000 years of history dealing with trained elephants, doing different activities, yeah. whether it's, you know, you know, in Western Europe, in the United States, our beasts of burden are horses in Myanmar and in India and in so many places, their beasts of burden have historically been elephants. I mean, Hannibal crossed the Alps on yeah. elephant back. Yeah. So if, if we look at it that way, there is a certain level of cultural insensitivity and uh, well, disrespect when you're talking about animal elephants, specifically interaction with humans. Yeah. Um, and so to categorically call it wrong is not recognizing the thousands of years of history and shared knowledge that gets passed down in a culture that's different than ours. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, trip advisors come out and if you do rides on animals uh, like exotics or you, they will not support your business or promote your business. And we hear all these people who now online saying, don't ride elephants in Southeast Asia. It's horrible. And I, I, I find that so upsetting. Absolutely want people to do a good job. So don't support those that don't. But you're taking away the livelihood of the people and the animals by doing that. And I've ridden elephants. You've ridden elephants. We're not, we're not harming, remotely harming an elephant by a human sitting on its back. But even Dr. Schmidt said, and I hadn't even thought of it in those terms, you're taking away the opportunity for a member of that family that those that uh, business of theirs might put through school to learn even more and do better by their animals, right? To progress and updates. I always say it's generational experience combined with updates in science and technology and best practices yes. is the program, right? And we want to Absolutely. remove the generational experience. And uh, that's devastating. We need that. Well, and it's also not necessarily the best thing for the elephant, right? right? If you look at different elephant interactions, the ones that get regular exercise, the ones that get regular mental stimulation, they are much healthier and live longer than the ones that are just sitting there getting treats all day so they can be looked at. Mm. And so, they breed better, which is really important. I know Dr. Schmidt has told me that. Yeah. 
That's extremely important. So it's, you know, just like you and I, if we sit on the couch all day and eat snacks, we're going to be much less healthy than if we're actually being active and doing things. And just because you're being active doesn't mean you're being abused. I mean, okay, I hate running. So I think running is abuse. (laughs) I see people out there running all the time, right? right? And I see people taking a jog and they enjoy it. And that's good for them. That's not the exercise I'm going to choose, but good for them. Right Right? there with you, sister. I'm not going to outlaw jogging because I don't like it. Exactly. Because sometimes it's, you know, that's the regimen that works well for that person to stay healthy. And it's the same corollary with animals. Yeah. It's it's really disturbing. So I want to segue a bit and talk a little bit about the the cool aspect and I've started thinking about this a lot more recently because somebody mentioned it and I knew it, but I, it's become more uh, in the forefront of my thoughts. We're protecting elephants. The IEF is, is working conservation and working with experts throughout the world. But when we protect elephants, we protect other animals in their ecosystem. And I had forgotten a bit about that. And it's really, again, something... I'm finding really cool and, um, you know, just hearing more about it. So I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. So we call elephants an umbrella species Mm -hmm. because if you protect elephants, they've so many other important species fall under that protective umbrella. And if you think about it, where elephants live, whether it's in Africa or Asia, they share their habitat with so many other endangered species but species that aren't necessarily getting the the PR that a nice, beautiful, big elephant is going to get, right? So, yeah, they share their space with every species of rhino. They share their space with giraffe. But they also share their space with multiple species of pangolin, which is the most traffic animal on the planet. And most people don't even know what a pangolin is. In Asia, they share their habitat with orangutan, with tapir, with... Uh, Tigers. Tigers, yeah. With these funky looking, um, they look like alligators, gharial, right? They, all these critters that are getting the conservation benefit of protecting elephants or of the elephants being protected. And all the way down to the near microscopic level, right? There are species of plant that will not germinate unless their seed has gone through the digestive tract of an elephant. So if elephants go extinct in that habitat, that plant is now threatened with extinction. There are tiny species of frog that live in the footprints of elephants because they collect water and dew, and it's just enough for them to go from footprint to footprint to go to their next place. And of course, you know, everyone knows about dung beetles feeding off elephant excrement. So you have an entire ecosystem that relies on its own health, having an elephant be there, having a whole herd of elephants be there. So yeah, if you protect elephants, you're protecting tigers. If you protect, you're protecting pangolin, you're doing all kinds of incredible things. Yeah. I, I did a podcast recently with Brian Easley who's, um, I know, um, elephant expert as far as knowing the elephants that are here in the United States and different, the locations they've been and that. And, uh, but Growler Pines Tiger Preserve. And I know he has donated to IEF. And initially I was like, wow, that's interesting. And then he explained the Sumatran tiger and, you know, and again, I knew that, but it, it brought it back around to me. So I thought that was very cool because I know he's committed to doing that. And it's, it's saving a lot of species, helping a lot of species. Absolutely. And yeah. I think he's also supported work in Nepal. So yeah. for an, a different species of tiger and it, you know, yeah, elephants and tigers share habitat. So yeah. of course, you know, he's a, tiger person and loves elephants as well. So it's a win-win for him. Yeah. But it's a win-win for everyone because absolutely, I mean, who doesn't love all these critters and all these animals and we have to do what we can to protect them. 
Yeah, it's up to us. Exactly. I, you, you started talking about that, saying that, you know, people care about elephants. I've always said, and I've gone to hearings and such when I was, um, when they were trying to ban elephants or ban elephant hooks or something, you know, and the outcry was about elephants. And I was raised with elephants, camels, llamas, zebra, horses, and some other domestic animals. And I always say, I even say this at hearings, that it demonstrates that this is about fundraising because we're not mm -hmm. using a camel or a even a bear at times or some other carnivore that might eat you. We're using these big, lovable elephants. And yes, they're the largest land mammals, but we care about all the animals. When I would go to a hearing and it was elephant specific, I would say, I don't want, I'm not going to allow this to be elephant specific because if you care about our elephants, we care about the camels, the llamas, the zebra, the donkey, the other animals that live in this group of animals that we hold. So if you know anything about animals, we deal with them the same, right? We have the same principles of care, animal husbandry, they're species specific, but it's an overall program. So if we're not doing right by the animals, then one would have to assume we weren't doing right by other animals and vice versa. So making it elephant specific always drove me out of my mind because it just speaks to the fact that it's a fundraiser because you can raise a lot more money off the back of an elephant and an elephant with a tear, which we'll talk about in a moment, versus a, uh, a zebra or a camel or a llama because it's not quite as compelling. So that, that I, I feel like that alone should help people understand when um, you know, the, the activists are, are having these elephant-specific things and um, raising multi-million dollars. What they could do for elephants and animals in their range countries at the in Elephant Managers Association, which I had the pleasure of <laughs> sitting beside you for a weekend, and I'm sure you were thrilled because mm -hmm. I'm a little chatty. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> it was great, and I enjoyed it, and we were with experts. It was so cool. But um, we, I heard, we heard from the one, I think it was the Asian Elephant Specialist Group, that they were excited about getting funding, and they showed pictures of the elephant, of the uh, light bulb. Just a light bulb, like the kind you'd see, one single light bulb. A little refrigerator and repairs to their Jeep, right? Like yeah. Christmas had come, and you guys were telling those kind of stories. And you think about... The ASPCA um, a colleague of ours, you know, Pierre uh, Jack Hubbard, who um, I'm trying to think of the Center for Environment and Welfare, put out a story about the ASPCA paying their leadership. Um, you're working for the wrong organization because they're paying their leadership <laughs> six figures, and uh, the the president makes uh, the CEO makes almost a mil um, a million dollars. And they have offshore accounts with multi-million dollars. I, I think about that, and I think about these people that I saw in some area of Southeast Asia who were, like, jo overjoyed at getting this rundown Jeep fixed, not even a new Jeep. And the, what they could do to fund rangers and fund programs, that's the part that I get so frustrated about because I think um, – and, and because they get the ear of – well, well-intentioned people who want to take care of animals. And there's so much and, money there. And that goes back to why IAF was founded. We were founded because so many elephant experts were frustrated with all the conservation dollars that were out there that weren't actually getting to the projects where it was needed. Yeah. Because when you look at the budgets for projects and things that we're doing, the U.S. dollar goes so far and you can make such an impact, right? Whether you donate $5 to IEF, that might pay feed for a, for a patrol horse in Mount Kenya. Or if you can donate $5,000, that might pay for an entire project yeah. or half, half of a whole project, right? Yeah. These are, you can make a huge difference and a huge impact, but it goes back to how you structure your charity, how you structure your conservation yeah. work. Right. And so if you look, 
IEF's percentage, we 85 to 90% of all of our funds go to boots on the ground conservation. They're not going to sad crying animal ads. They're not going right. to bloated overhead. We don't have fancy offices in DC. We don't have anything like that. So if you, if you do your due diligence and you investigate into their publicly disclosed financials, you can see whether an organization is truly making an impact or whether it's a fundraising scheme. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I was so excited to get you on. And I I promote International Elephant Foundation all the time. And it, it's just so important. Elephants are so, they are amazing. So let's go to, back to the tier. <laughs> so the, the <laughs> animal rights groups will have an elephant with a tear and say that the elephant's so sad or she's so happy because she saw a, a uh, elephant that she grew up with or something. Tell us about the tear on okay. an elephant. <laughs> well, that's just a that's just a physiology question. <laughs> yes. If we if we talk about our eyes, we have two eyelids, an upper and a lower, and tear ducts in those eyelids. Elephants have three eyelids and no tear ducts. They have the upper eyelid, the lower eyelid, and a third eyelid, which is technically called a nissitating membrane. And that goes horizontally across their eye and washes the surface of the eye. No tear ducts. Right. So when you see schmutz in the corner of their eye, that's the nissitating membrane pushing dirt or whatever out their eye. Yes. It has nothing to do with emotional tears, right? You and I will cry for whatever reason, but that's not something elephants do. Yeah. They can show emotion in other ways. Yes. And you've been you've been around elephants. You can tell their personality, tell their Oh yeah. If they're excited about something or whatever, but it's not gonna be through tears. Yeah. So that's just a a fundamental physiological misunderstanding of elephant anatomy. Well, right. And on the it's a it's a absolute intention on the part of the fundraisers that they put an elephant out there and and describe it, you know, say it's crying or it's so sad. And it just, I tell people that they look at me like I have two heads. I was like, they don't have tear ducts. They don't cry. Right. Yeah. It's, they, I mean, elephants are amazing, right? Yeah. They don't really even have sweat glands. Right. They have, their only sweat glands are in between their toenails, the whole rest of their body. And, you know, these are animals that live in extremely hot areas. They don't, they don't sweat. They cover themselves in dirt. They give themselves dust baths. They have huge uh, veins in the back of their ears where the blood circulates through. So it helps um, cool the blood off because it's right below the surface of the skin. So it kind of acts as a radiator. They have all kinds of ways to cool themselves off, but no sweat glands. So yeah. it, it's just weird. Elephants are this amazing animal so different from us and yet we do have a human tendency all of us do to map our human characteristics onto the world around us whether that's an elephant or a dog or whatever um but yeah there's yeah. there's there's no tear ducts to cry so tell me um i'd love to hear a story from you maybe something you saw over when you were traveling um to a country and elephants in in a pond or something or some interaction i'd love to hear something that and remember this is visual so like listen okay. uh, um, audio so audio yeah describe it to our listeners i, I know you've had some Absolutely. really cool experiences well i we have a long-running projects in sumatra which is an island in indonesia and um the sumatran elephant which is the only recognized subspecies of Asian elephant. There's maybe around 1,500, maybe a little less left in the whole world. So they are critically endangered. And we have projects called elephant response units or conservation response units where um, mahouts, wildlife rangers, and trained elephants patrol the fractured habitat that still exists in Sumatra, not only to protect the habitat, but to remove snares and uh, stop illegal um, wildlife harvesting, things like uh, getting rid of illegal palm oil plantations and things like that. Um, 
And so I was lucky enough to actually go to these locations where the CRUs and the ERUs exist and be out there in the middle of, we call it the Hutan. That's what they call their like forest or jungle area in the middle of the Hutan with these elephants and, you know, go on patrol with them. And it's amazing the bond that these Mahouts have with these elephants. And they, when I'm talking about the jungle, the Hutan, there is no way you're going to get a motorbike or a, a vehicle of any kind through to these areas. But these guys on elephant back, they can, they can go anywhere through huge uh, swampy areas, through mud, things where you couldn't get there on foot. And that's where they catch the predominant or the largest number of snares and all of these different things. Oh, interesting. And it's, uh, it's fun because when you come back at night after patrol, every elephant gets a bath, just like if it were in a zoo here, right? You're going to give your elephant a bath and these guys take them down to the river and they all climb in the water with them and they're giving them a bath and they're putting their feet up and they're scrubbing them. They're, they're uh, having them suck water up into their trunk and then blow it. Right. And so I was there and I'm watching them. They're blowing water and things like that. And they're, the elephants are doing whatever they feel like doing. They're having a great time, but they're listening to their mahouts or listening to the wildlife officers who are there. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is exactly what people in the United States who are trying to train their elephant to do trunk washes, right. For different physiological um, diagnostic tests need to see, right. Because look at these guys, they're in the middle of the jungle and they could do a trunk wash right now. Sure. It's with river water and not saline, but they can do it instantly. They may not be able to tell you about it, right. Their language skills might not be as great, but they, what they could do and the bond that they had with their patrol elephants is incredible. And the, for me, it's important to note that so Sumatra had a huge um, elephant conflict problem. And for a long time, the government solution was we're going to catch what they called problem elephants and just house them in these elephant centers. They didn't have any plan for them and anything to do, but they were what was what were considered unreleasable elephants. Right. Well, that's unsustainable because you can't just keep catching problem elephants. The CRUs and the ERUs were developed to put these quote unquote unreleasable elephants to work to protect the existing habitats. So all the other elephants wouldn't get into danger with humans, right? So the CRU elephants herd the wild elephants away from human settlements. So in a way, their ambassadors for their species actively protecting their own species. Uh, and it's really great because they're getting all the exercise they need. They're getting high quality food. They're, they're breeding with each other. They're uh, exhibiting all the natural behaviors that they need to. They are uh, eating while they're on patrol, right? Because yeah. they're in the Hutan. You have, you have, a whole array of delicious food if you're an elephant. Um, so it's it's really a cool thing to see that kind of trunk in hand conservation yeah. that that they're doing just in that area. Yeah, it's such dedicated people and nobody's getting rich on this. They're doing it for the love of animals and protection of the species and all that. It's amazing. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, these are... These are communities, they're protecting communities who are subsistence farmers, right? So when we were, we had to hike into the the base camps where the elephants are based. And you're hiking alongside, until you get into the uh, national park areas, when you're hiking alongside these subsistence farmers who are literally planting rice one plant at a time by hand. By hand. This is nothing that people here are seeing. So, of course, if a herd of elephants comes out of that national yeah. park where they're 
and then eats that whole field in one night. That's devastating to that family. That's, you know, these are people who they are working so hard to just get by. So of course they feel a sense of pride with this, with the CRUs because they recognize that these elephants are making their lives better. So a lot of these farmers will bring parts of their crops to the CRU elephants to, as a thank you, because they feel connected to them. They are thankful for these elephants as opposed to being angry that elephants exist. Yeah. So it, it, it has flipped the script from an adversarial relationship with local elephants to being grateful and thankful that they're there and working with conservationists to protect habitat and protect species. So it, I really love that project. I mean, I love all of our projects, but I, I love that one because I really can see the change in the people and the change in the elephants. And it's making a difference for a very important, but threatened, you know, critically endangered population of elephants. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I, it makes me feel good when I was at the elephant managers conference you know, the plight of elephants is so distressing. And then I hear, I go online and I see people who are just so misguided about what that means and what that's all about. And then I have the opportunity to hear professionals and experts talk about it and sit with them and um, people who are actively taking care of elephants, breeding elephants, you know, doing work with elephants. And it it's inspiring. You know, pe- there are people who have it right and care and going about it in the right way. And I'm hopeful that people listening to this will understand that they can get on board with something that's actually not just, you know, they think is feeling good, but actually helping the animals. So that's exciting. So I want you to reiterate once again, um, as we wrap this up, what do you want people to take away? These are lay people, not, you know, not, we're not preaching to our choir, our animal keepers. What do you want them to take away uh, that, that you feel can do the, the most help for the animals? That's a good question. I, I think it's important that people realize that there are more threats to elephants than just poaching. Like I said before, if we waved a magic wand and got rid of all poaching, elephants still need our help. And that's because there is not some magic place where they can be safe and live out their lives. We have to protect habitat. We have to promote human elephant coexistence. And that means working with people so they can safely safely live next to elephants or alongside them so they can share their space with elephants. And that may include helping them learn alternative livelihoods. That may include education. That definitely includes uh, reaching out to the younger generation so you can build the future conservationists. But it, it means that we need to be adaptable in our approach to conservation. There's no one size fits all with elephant conservation. And that means people need to be inspired to care. And the only way that people are inspired to care really truly and in a lasting way is if they have some sort of connection. And one of the easiest ways to make a connection with an elephant is seeing one in person. Yeah. So even, even though you may think that that zoo that's down the street where you see an elephant has no connection to the wild populations, look into what their work is. Because they most likely are donating to conservation work or their elephants are participating in research studies that help conservationists figure out how to best address wild populations. So just because you can't necessarily see the connection between those elephants and human care and the wild doesn't mean it's not there. And it doesn't mean that it's not impactful because the fact that you are still thinking about that elephant that you saw means that that elephant has made a difference and you are more likely to donate to conservation or to take steps to make elephants not go extinct. And so it's it's very important that you look at the big picture of it and that people see that the more elephants we have out there visible, the better so that people can make that connection and we can 
not basically fall into the out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Boy, very well said. Not surprisingly, because I know you're very adept and uh, knowledgeable, but that was that was very well said. And I, I will uh, add a lot in show notes for how people can donate and how they can get involved. You've been doing the conservation chats too, which are really cool. So a lot of great stuff and a lot of experts involved in caring for elephants across the planet. So thank you for all you do, Sarah, and the International Elephant Foundation. I hope to interview Debbie as well and uh, just just keep this information out there. I think it's that it's so important. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Heidi, and thank you for all you do. We we love learning about animals and all the different aspects of animal care and yeah. animal policy, and you're doing a great job teaching people. So thank you so much. Thank you. What a fantastic conversation with Sarah. So knowledgeable, and she's actually seen for herself, which is a mantra on my podcast. You know, when possible, go see for yourself. We may not all get to foreign countries to see elephants, but fortunately, we have this medium podcast, we have TV, YouTube, so we can at least follow along as others do that. So please take this information to heart. She has seen for herself. Sarah is an expert and involved in the conservation of this incredible species. So many of you out there talk about loving elephants and the utopian wild. I think it's really important to understand and drill down and get into the middle of this. So I'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Maybe let us know what your experiences are, why you care so much about elephants. It's really important that we have a chance to see them. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please share it. It's really important for me to tell these stories and to have these folks on to tell their stories. I also hope you'll join me next time for more Animal Tales. Animal Tales.